um, do uh, some Bible questions and answers. And so if you've got a question that you want answered and want me to try to get to at least, fill out one of these little slips up here. And there's, I'd like to say there's no such thing as dumb questions like teachers used to say, right? <laughs> but, uh, but we want to answer whatever you can and whatever we're able to get to. And if we don't get to it this coming time, we will have some more later down the road. But you know, I've already got several uh, come in already and I got them sitting on my desk and I'm going to go through this week and put some stuff together. But I'm excited, looking forward to it. And uh, we've got, got some really good questions asked so far, some tough ones. Um, so it, it might be an exciting night. So you might come and you might leave angry. I don't know. <laughs> but you might, might get an answer answered or you, you might just get mad. I don't know. But, um, but I, I'm looking forward to it. But tonight, uh, let's go ahead and, and uh, let's uh, read this Psalm, to, uh, uh, Psalm 11 and just seven, seven short verses, Psalm 11. And then we'll pray and uh, ask the Lord to help us tonight. It says, In the Lord put I my trust. How say ye to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For lo, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string that they may privily shoot at the upright in heart. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids try the children of men. The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked in him that loveth violence his soul hateth. Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire, and brimstone, and a horrible tempest. This shall be the portion of their cup. For the righteous Lord loveth righteousness. His countenance doth behold the upright. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this night. God, I thank you for the songs sung tonight, Lord. That we see your goodness and your faithfulness to us, Lord, that one day we're getting to get to be with you. But until that day, we do know and have that assurance that you walk with us and through every storm of, and trial of life, where I pray that you would... Help us tonight to have our hearts open up to your word. And Lord, that you would guide us, strengthen us, direct us. And Lord, that we might be encouraged tonight from your word. Lord, we love you and we thank you once more for this time. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we look at this psalm, this is uh, written, as it says, a psalm of David. But I want to take you back. So hold your place here. But I want you to flip back to 1 Samuel 26 with me. 1 Samuel 26. We believe that this psalm has taken place around this time. And you'll see why in just a moment. But Psalm 26, what's happening here, you might have a heading at the beginning of the chapter that will tell you something like David spares Saul again. We think about this. David was on the run for his life, literally. His enemies are against him. Uh, everyone seems to be against him at this point, and Saul is coming after him. And David has already had one opportunity to uh, take down Saul, but he's uh, said this is not right. And he said, I've done no wrong, and I don't want to take the Lord's anointed at this point. And so he spared him. And then here he's been given another opportunity to do something similar. But uh, let's read verse number 15 of, of 1 Samuel 26. It tells us, And David said to Abner, Art not thou a valiant man? And who is like to thee in Israel? Wherefore then hast thou not kept thy Lord the king? For there came one of the people in to destroy the king of thy Lord. This thing is not good that you hast done. And the, as the Lord liveth, ye are worthy to die, because ye have not kept your master, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is in the cruise of water that was at his bolster. And Saul knew David's voice and said, Is this thy voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. And he saith, Wherefore doth my lord that thus pursue after his servant? For what have I done? Or what evil is mine hand? Is in mine hand? Now, therefore, I pray thee, let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If the Lord hath stirred thee up against me, let him accept an offering. 
But if they be the children of men, cursed be they before the Lord. For they have driven me out of, out of this day from abiding in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, Go serve other gods. Now, therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth before the face of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a flea, as when one doth hunt a partridge in the mountains. Then said Saul, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do thee harm, because my soul was precious in thine eyes this day. Behold, I have played the fool and have erred exceedingly. And David answered and said, Behold the king's spear, and let one of the young men come over and fetch it. The Lord rendered to every man his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord delivered thee into my hand today, but I would not stretch forth my hand against the Lord's anointed. And behold, as thy life was much set by this day in, the, in mine hands, excuse me, in mine eyes, so let my life be much set by in the eyes of the Lord, and let him deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be thou, my son David. Thou shalt both do great things, and also shalt still prevail. So David went on his way, and Saul returned to his place. Exactly what we're about to read in this psalm and study and look at is very similar to some of the language and phrases that we find here. We're going to find that verse 23, the Lord render to every man his righteousness and his faithfulness. We're going to find towards the end of Psalm 11 that that's exactly what God does and will do. It's what he does now, but in time, God will ultimately do that in the end of all days, that all those who have been wicked will receive their due reward, and so will the righteous. But you back up to verse 20, and we find even more so about this. David is on the run from Saul. One writer says the psalm, as a psalm of David, must have come from a time when David was hunted down by Saul as one hunts a partridge in the mountains. We see Psalm 11, verse 1 says, Flee as a bird to your mountain. And then here in 1 Samuel 26, verse 20, uh, uh, For the king of Israel has come out to seek a flea as when one doth hunt a partridge in the mountains. The language is very similar. We see that David is certainly being hunted much like a bird would be hunted in the mountains and would flee for, for safety. And God, though, in this time and in, in this psalm is delivering David by his faithfulness and his timing and that's exactly how God delivers in every storm of life, by God's faithfulness and in his time. There are storms that we've just sung about that seem to last years. There are storms that even do last years. There are storms, though, that might last a day or even just a minute if we really think about it. But nevertheless, we know that God delivers his people in his time, in his way, but it's always through his faithfulness. And that's exactly what takes place in 1 Samuel 26, and as we come to Psalm 11, we're going to see here that what appears to be taking place in the first couple of verses is we're going to see David's concern, but what happens beforehand, you can almost imagine as all this is taking place that David has some advisors and they are beginning to tell him, flee to the mountain like a bird. We must run for cover. You must run for safety. The enemy is coming. The enemy seems to be everywhere at this point. Flee to the mountains. We find here, David says, I'm not going to flee, but rather I'm going to trust in the Lord. That is going to be the key tonight, to trust in the Lord. We're going to see something, though, uh, as we go through here, that ultimately every part of the foundation of our faith, every foundation that we have in our Christian walk boils down to one thing, and that's found here in verse number one. In the Lord put I my trust. If you want to sum up the Christian experience, if you want to sum up salvation, sanctification, 
one day glorification, it, if you want to sum up every part of your life as a believer in Christ, it comes down to this. In the Lord do I put my trust. That's it. That you trust the Lord. It is you trusting the Lord that is there that moment of salvation where you're born again by grace alone through faith alone. It is there throughout the storms of life and your sanctification process that we continuously, every day, we wake up, we're given the opportunity. Today, am I going to trust in my job, my money, my relationships, my ability, or am I going to trust the Lord? Right? It is that key every single day in the Lord, but I my trust. David told the flea, but he says, I will put my confidence in God alone. David's concern is found here in verses 1 through 3. First of all, he says, in the Lord put I my trust. While David's advisors tell him to flee to the mountain as a bird would seek refuge, David turns to the mountain of God's refuge. It is one thing to flee to a physical mountain for safety like a, like a bird or, a, or an animal may when danger comes, and it's another thing to flee to the mountain of God, as it's often referred to. Where, as we're going to see later on, that God is sitting upon this throne, that the Lord is in His holy temple, and the Lord's throne is in heaven, and all of these uh, sort of uh, pictorial, uh, pictorial uh, uh, phrases to show us how high God is and, and how He rules over all things. We can trust Him. Later on in the Psalms, Psalm 121, verse 1 and 2, tell us this about the mountain of God, if you will. I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my help. My help cometh from the Lord, which made heaven and earth. It is God who made those mountains for us to have a physical refuge, but it is God who is the mountain of refuge uh, in times of spiritual trouble, in times that David is facing. David is facing both a physical and a spiritual battle here where everything is coming against him. There are those who are trying to keep him from becoming king. There are those who are trying to keep him from uh, inheriting what God has promised to him. And, and there are those as well who are discouraging and, and spreading lies and falsehood, as we'll see here in just a few moments. But what we find with this, this key phrase, first of all, in the Lord put I my trust. David could certainly put his trust in a lot of things. David is a valiant warrior. David has much skill with a bow and a slingshot and a sword and spear and everything else that a soldier would have. David, we don't know how big or small he necessarily was, but we know this. He was capable of taking care of himself. Right? If there's a a fight breaking out, well, David's probably going to be pretty okay, physically speaking, right? He's, he, he's rough and, and tough and all that stuff. He, he's able to take care of himself, but here he doesn't say, in my sword do I put my trust? In my spear do I put my trust? In my soldiers do I put my trust? He says, in the Lord put I my trust. He puts his trust in him alone. The confidence in the Lord describes the psalmist as he is surrounded by the wicked and receives counsel from his advisors. His confidence is grounded in years of walking with God. Therefore, he is amazed at the lack of stability of his advisors. Where is their faith when they counsel him to flee? As he says in verse 1, How say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? He is responding to them, You ask me and would have me to, to flee and to, to run, but I would be better off to stand, not to fight, but to stand and trust God, to know that the battle belongs to the Lord. It, it, David knows that if God wants him to be king, that there's nothing that's going to stop it. And this is the truth when we see even just the word Lord, knowing that God is sovereign in control of all things. If something is going to happen, there is not a thing that you can do with all of your might to stop it from happening. 
Now, does that mean that we just go about tossed to and fro and just say, well, I, I, it just, I got no control, so it just doesn't matter what I choose to do. No, that's not the case at all. But rather, it means this. Just as soon as you are born, that means you're going to die. You have no decision in the sense of your days are numbered. How about even with this? Can you control an accident that is out of your control? No, of course not. And what do we say about tragedies that just happen out of nowhere that seem so seemingly or just boom, it happens and we go, how did this even happen? Why could this happen? How could this happen? All these things. We have to trust the Lord because he alone knows these things. He knows the heart. He knows the situation. And we find here the key for David has been years of trusting the Lord. And he's built up not to where he says, well, I've trusted the Lord all these years, so I'm spiritual enough now to take care of my own problems. But rather, he goes, I've trusted the Lord all these years. Therefore, I should just keep trusting the Lord. It's brought me this far. To those of you who maybe don't even have to be, you know, senior saints, but have walked with the Lord for years, you know this, that God has never once failed. God has never once lied to you. He's never once wronged you. He's never once done anything against you that would show that he's done with you or just put you on a shelf. None of those things. And so, has he ever given us a reason to stop trusting? Of course not. Matter of fact, every day he gives us more and more reason to trust him. Why? Because we've made it another day. If I've made it through today and I've made it through yesterday, then that means not by my strength, but by trusting in God's strength that I can make it through tomorrow, whatever may come, whatever may be around the corner. We find that in the Lord put I my trust, it brings us down to this foundation as we're about to see in verse 3. It asks, he asks the question, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? The foundation of our righteousness and the foundation of the righteous man is that phrase, in the Lord put I my trust. Everything in your life must boil down to faith. You are either right now living a life full of faith or you, you are living a life in the flesh. Or, and to live a life in the flesh is to live by fear. I have a missionary friend of mine, Matthias Amadome. He's from Togo, and he runs Joybringers Africa. He's a great guy and absolutely loves the Lord. And every time I talk to him, we say the same phrase to each other that is kind of the motto for that group that, that he does as, as a missionary. And, and uh, he does everything. I mean, it's just terrific. But, but their, their motto is no fear, faith only. And, and every time we talk to him on the phone, he's gone through some tough times. I say, hey, Mati, no fear. He goes, faith only, brother. And that's it, right? That's my best, my T voice there. But, and there's even times in life where I'll hear, no fear, faith only. Why? Because when we have fear, we're certainly not living by faith. We're walking by the flesh because we're trusting in ourselves or our circumstance. But when we are trusting and walking and living by faith, well, there is no fear. Why? Because it's perfect love that casts out fear. We're, we're trusting in God and going, the worst thing that could happen to me as a believer is that I die and go to heaven. So for David, he's got no fear there. He's got no fear of death. He's got no fear of what man can do to him. Why? Because he knows and trusts God. He has watched God do so many things in his life. And he goes, why would I, why would I stop trusting him now? It reminds me of, of Polycarp. So, some might have known the story of, of historical account of Polycarp. Polycarp was an a, uh, early church father. Uh, he was, uh, I believe, uh, uh, from remembering correctly, a disciple of, of John, or, or at least not shortly removed after him, but he had faced severe persecution and was ultimately going to be killed for it. And he said, basically, it came down to his, some of his final words are recorded as, all these years, 
I've served him. He's never failed me. Why would I deny him now? Why would I deny him at this moment, at such an age and at such a time as this? How could I even? And we see that throughout church history, throughout uh, the lineage of faith, even going back to David, that we find that everyone who puts their trust in the Lord and truly trusts him goes, how could I stop or not? He's given me no reason. Now, when it comes to people, there are times that you might go, I don't trust them near as much as I used to, or they're an untrustworthy person. Why? Because you've seen they've given no reason to trust. But when it comes to the Lord and we see his character, we see his nature and all of who God is, we go, how could you not trust him? This must be the response of every believer in every circumstance of life, trusting the Lord. If, if your bank account looks kind of rough, trust the Lord. If, if you go, I, I don't know how I'm going to make it through, trust the Lord. If emotionally you're a wreck and you're grieving or you just feel broken, or, or even you've, you're so full of sin that you feel you can't even go further or, or move on or you feel as if God will be done with you, just trust the Lord. It boils down to simple faith. The most simple thing in just trusting God. Uh, uh, Chrysostom, the early church fathers, tells us this about trusting in the Lord. It says, Great is the power of hope in the Lord. Invincible citadel, unassailable rampart, insuperable reinforcement, tranquil haven, impregnable tower, irresistible weapon, unconquerable power, capable of discovering a refuge where none seems possible. When all hope is lost, trust in the Lord. When all is well, trust in the Lord. David knew exactly what this meant. He goes on, and his concerns then come in the verses 2 and 3, and he says, For lo, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string that they may privily shoot at the upright in heart. First of all, David's concerns go as follows. One, the wicked enemies bend their bow of a slandering tongue to shoot at the heart of the righteous. Up to this point in the psalm so far, and, and as you study the life of David throughout uh, Samuel and all of these different things and accounts of his life, you find that constantly people are going against him, sometimes physically seeking out his life, but much of the enemies that come against him come verbally. And I would say that for most of us in, in church today, that most of the spiritual attacks that you will face will not be someone coming to beat you on the head with a club and asking you or telling you to deny Christ at least not yet, not here in America, other parts of the world, certainly. But here, what we might have to face is the emotional issues of a, a gossiper in the corner that's telling everyone how bad we are, or how sinful we are, or how not fit we are, whatever it might be. We, we have to normally deal with the most attacks coming from the tongue. You know, we talked last week what Romans chapter 3 tells us about man's tongue, how, how it's a, an open sepulcher, it's an open grave, it's just deadly, it's smells and reeks of death and destruction that's what the tongue does and here he's describing them as a hunter or as a warrior with their their bow the wicked bend their bow they make ready their arrow upon the string he's describing the whole process for them of about it to fire what we would call in ephesians like satan's fiery darts and so just as we're given the spiritual armor to defeat and to quench those fiery darts with faith mind you a shield of faith that quench all the fiery darts here david is a similarly doing the same thing to trust the lord or what would we call that we would call that faith and here he's about to try to quench these fiery darts as they're about to literally 
bend their bow. It's as if they're stringing it up. They're making it ready. They're putting an arrow on and they're taking aim for David's heart. They're taking an aim for where it's going to hurt the most to try to destroy him. There is also an allusion to the physical threat of those who are literally coming against him, as we read earlier in 1 Samuel 26, with bows and spears and sword that are seeking his life. The second thing that we find is that the enemy that is against the righteous do so secretly or in the darkness. They never do so openly. It is, it is coming against, and as we have seen in the past previous Psalms, and it's not just this sort of open, uh, I want you to see me. It is this sort of crouching and hiding. As we saw in Psalm 10, he sitteth in the lurking places, the villages, the secret places, doth he murder the innocent. His eyes are privily set against the poor. He lieth and waits secretly as a lion in the den. He lieth and wait to catch the poor. The same idea here is noticed here. The word privily. Privily, we don't use it a whole lot anymore. But the idea of the word translated in the Hebrew as privily has the understanding of secretly or done in the darkness. Enemies are lurking so that none can see. The ones that often do the most damage in church or spiritual damage to other believers are never the ones that are out in the open. As a matter of fact, it's out in the open that they appear as if they are saints and wonderful sheep that just are going around with everyone else and thinks they're great. But it's the ones that you least expect sometimes that have those fiery darts that are preparing because in the dark is where they're doing everything. It's the idea that they are deceptive, that they are in the dark deceptively and discreetly and secretly trying to shoot at the upright in heart. And this is the case that many pastors find themselves in. If you're asking for me, I, I'm not going to tell you. Right? Just, just pray for your pastor. How about that? But I know many pastor friends and many church friends and leadership friends, they would all say the same thing, and that the hurts that hurt the most come a lot of times out of nowhere from the least suspected place, and it goes right where it hurts. It goes right for your heart. It doesn't go for an arm or a finger. It doesn't try just to stub your toe. It's coming for your heart to get you just to stop dead in your tracks and just be defeated. Unfortunately, this happens to far too many believers. The key, I believe, to preparing for the enemy that comes, like verse 2, is the first phrase in verse 1. In the Lord put I my trust. I know that the wicked might bend their bow against me, but I know that God is a shield and a refuge and a high tower and my fortress and my defense. Therefore, I can trust in Him. I can rest in Him. Third, we find this, and this is a key for tonight. I'm going to park on it for a few. Verse number 3. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? To be honest with you, verse number three is a whole sermon in and of itself. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? The idea that he is getting at here, as he's pointing at Saul, who, as we read in First First Samuel twenty six, he's willingly seeking out the one who God has said it's going to be the king. He's the one. He's going to be. He's next. Seeking him out. The foundations of the society under Saul had begun to crumble, if you will. What we find as we study Israel's history, and what we find if we study every single uh, uh, history of every empire or nation, is pretty much the same thing. 
do good for a while. Now, we'll, we'll take Israel just for example. Israel's doing good, right? Riding the mountaintop, things are good. God gave us a law, this is great. Head to the promised land, but guess what? We get to the outskirts of the promised land, we look in, we send some spies. There's giants and lions and tigers and bears, oh my, and all this stuff. There's no way we can do it. We're not going to take it, even though God already told us we could. So what happens? Doubt comes in, sin comes in, we go to wander. Things are bad. 40 years of it. Then we finally get to come back. God says, get rid of the enemies. Don't yoke up with them. Don't marry them. Why? Not because God was racist, but rather because they were a bunch of pagan heathens who worshiped false gods. And he said they might look pretty on the outside. He tells the Israelite young men, he said, hey, young fellas, they're going to look real pretty when you get there, but boy, are they going to be dangerous. And not, not because pretty women are dangerous, but the idea is that they literally were going to wreak havoc in Israel. And they did. The moment that they begin to do so, they depart from God. Why? Because of all the shiny stuff around them. Everything else looks so good. And then what happens? Judges come in. Judges come in. They whip them into shape. Things are good for a little while. And then what happens? The judge dies. There's a space and time. And it don't take long, but maybe about a generation, which is about 15 to 20 years. And guess what? We're back to sin, dancing around uh, Asherah poles and everything else, and everything's a mess. And then what happens? Another judge comes. Whip him back into shape. God delivers. This is great. Same over and over. Then they say, you know what? The rest of the nations around us that are pagan, well, they got kings. We want a king. So they get one. And guess what happens? He then comes after king who would be and should be King David. And, and we have these issues all throughout Israel's history, these ups and downs, ups and downs. And the reason why we find the deep, dark downs of their society, even to where they are then taken into captivity multiple times, taken away in literally the whole city of Jerusalem, which is supposed to be the place of peace, the place where God was dwelling, the, the place where everything was supposed to be good, literally burning. When we come to a place into a man in a book like Nehemiah, where there, he's in captivity, serving as a cupbearer, and there's all this chaos, and he gets word that the walls are not only down and crumbling, but they're even burning, just Everything is a mess. Everything physically where no one could live or survive there because the enemies could just walk right in because there's no walls at this point anymore. They're, they're crumbled down. And, and spiritually speaking, the idea was the same. It's not just physically they're in danger, but spiritually they're in danger. Why? Because you've been in captivity. They had forgotten God. They had left his law and his rules and all of these things. So what we find here is as he says, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? It brings us back now to our day and age. If the foundations that are there begin to crumble, which is trusting in the Lord, then everything else falls apart, doesn't it? The moment that you begin to question the Lord, or, or really, I would say not question, the moment you begin to doubt God's goodness is the moment you're starting to have the walls of your heart shake. I would say you can go back and trace that all the way back to, to Adam and Eve. Remember, God had said everything that's in this garden is good for you, right? It, it, it's great. It's perfect. It, it's great. Just don't eat that one tree and you'll be fine. Everything else is literally yours. And the devil basically comes and says, can you believe God is supposed to be good and is withholding from you? And then Eve goes, you know, you're kind of right. This thing looks good for food. I'm kind of hungry and I sure would like to know how it's going to make me feel afterwards and eats and then he eats and we see the whole mess. 
the way our foundations, or excuse me, rather, the way our life crumbles begins with foundations. The reason why today, and I would say the reason why for the past 80 couple years, that slowly but surely the Judeo-Christian values of our nation have begun to crumble is because it was just about 120 years ago that evolution became incredibly popular. Critical theory became very popular as far as Marxism and things. And so everything that we knew to be true began to be questioned. And what happened is people who said, I believe the Bible, didn't really believe the Bible. Or those who at least believed it on Sunday mornings didn't believe it the rest of the week and they didn't have an answer for everything else around them. And so when the attacks came against the Scripture, which is what happens naturally, it's what the devil does, he hasn't changed up his tactics. He attacks and gets you to doubt God's Word. If you doubt God's Word, which is our foundation, everything else will fall apart. Right? And why would the devil spend so much time and all of his ammo shooting out the towers? He's not shooting out towers. He's shooting at the foundation. Now, he knows he can't disprove this Bible because he knows this is God's Word. But if he can get you to doubt it and not believe it, well, then he, he's won that battle. Because everything else in your life will crumble. And when we see our society today, this verse is really striking. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? I would say certainly we have watched in our nation the foundations not only be destroyed, but be bombarded. We've watched cannonballs of sinfulness and doubt and moral decay and ideologies not just creep in the church, but be thrust in the church and promoted from pulpits and pews. And what has happened is our homes have grown weaker. And you could trace all these things back to really after World War II. What happens is we come back from World War II, right? We're defending champs. Things are great, right? We, we've had jobs and we won a war and all this is good. Then we, uh, we start to have jobs and uh, not just the husband's working, but now the wife wants to stay and work too. And then everyone's got a nice uh, Chevy and, and, and a refrigerator and a little home and everyone can afford it on what they're working with. They work Monday to Friday you know, eight-hour days at a factory somewhere, and things are good. Life's good. they got two, three young'uns going around. They can even afford to send their kids to college because it's not outrageous, and they send them off. And what happens is just a couple, uh, one generation later, is we have the sexual revolution. And you go, well, how'd that even get there? It just didn't just show up overnight. But with the sexual revolution comes also uh, a major push for the feminization of America, the thrust for um, equal rights and what happened in the rights. I'm not talking about equal rights. I'm talking about, talking about health rights that were claimed. Well, these are our equal rights to murder our babies. And once that happens in 73, then we're continuing a downward spiral. The next generation needs more and more and more freedom to do what they want. And now you look today and it's as if we don't even have any walls up in America. And I'm not talking about walls to keep people out. I'm talking about a spiritual wall anymore. Spiritual walls that have just been crumbled. Why? Because at one point in time, there was a generation that I believe loved the Lord, but didn't hold their foundations true. And the foundations got shot at a couple times, and they said, well, that's not too bad. We defended that one. But the next generation wasn't ready. The next generation got bombarded even harder with even more stuff coming against it and more stuff and more stuff and more stuff. And now this generation truly is facing more than I believe ever before. The sad thing is that most of them don't have a leg to stand on. Because we look and if the foundation be destroyed, what can the righteous do? 
Well, our option here is very simple. The only thing that the righteous can do when the foundations are crumbled or destroyed is to trust the Lord. And when we trust the Lord, we make it so simple, then slowly but surely we can begin to rebuild. We spend a lot of time like Nehemiah where we look around and we say, we start walking the walls and we go, well, this is what's wrong, this is what's wrong, this needs fixing, that needs done, right? Right? Our wives do it for us, right? That's how they get our hundred years. They look around and go, this needs done, that needs done, and they find it and they go, here you go, right? Build a wall, right? <laughs> get it fixed. But what has happened, though, is that I would say that in the Church of America, we spent so much time looking at a previous generation or a new generation and say, well, these are all the things that are wrong, and we've never stopped to actually pick up a hammer or a nail or to start rebuilding. And we've just left the wall down and destroyed and the foundations destroyed instead of going, well, let's get back to that foundation and let's relay it. I don't know much about building homes. I do know this. There are those who you can pay big money to, right? Big money. And you know what they'll do? They'll fix your foundation. If you've got foundation issues, you don't have to just go, well, tear it down. We'll find another place to live. They'll, they'll fix it. It takes some serious digging, some serious money, some serious work, and it's a big old inconvenience, and it's just not fun. But if that foundation gets fixed, then guess what? You don't have to move. <laughs> you don't have to break down the rest of the house. What I would say is as we look at our nation today, and specifically as we look at the church in America today, is we've been so quick and so easy to just dismiss the idea or either to ignore the problem where now the foundations are crumbled and the house is starting to cave in, it's time to stop going, well, here's all the problems. I hope somebody fixes them because I'm too old to or I'm too tired to or I just don't see no hope to. It's time that we go, let's build. And where do we build from? Not from the roof down, from the foundation up. Our foundation is simple. It's in the Lord do I put my trust. And what has happened in the past two years is that has been either shucked out the window by many or it has been exposed as many who would say with their lips, I trust the Lord. We found that really their heart says, but I trust CNN and Fox News more. Or I trust God to take care of me, but man, uh, this is getting tight. Or, this is getting bad. This is getting difficult. We've got to get back to simply I'm trusting Christ. I'm trusting the Lord. That's it. Sorensen writes, The very foundations of law and justice were being destroyed under Saul's unrighteous government. In despair, David pondered what a righteous man could accomplish in such circumstances. Humanly, he saw no hope. When sin abounds, the very foundation of society is undermined. That's what he was facing, and that's certainly what we're facing today, because the patterns of the world system are no different. Everything is cyclical. It goes in a cycle and in a circle. This is why every empire that has ever fallen has fallen the same way. A total departure from God and trusting Him and His Word. Even the pagan nations, they might survive and thrive for a little bit. And as a matter of fact, I would say that America is probably about the longest lasting empire for quite some time. You could go maybe British or so, maybe make the argument. But the idea is this. Look what happens when you make a departure. It takes a couple of generations. And what do we got? Crumbled. Destroyed foundations. Why? Because generation after generation either ignored the problem or didn't see that it was worth fighting for and left the simple truth of just, 
trust God. Trust the Lord. What has happened to our American Christianity is unfortunately we've trusted in our prosperity. We've had it very easy. Raise your hand if you've ever been beaten for trusting Jesus. Me either. Now, raise your hand if you've been jailed without any sort of rights because you trust Jesus. Me either. But if we were to go to other nations, they would not be able to say such. They would simply cling to, in the Lord do I put my trust. And we have been so prosperous here that now that we're starting to see how bad our foundations actually are and how everything around us is crumbling, our society as a whole is crumbling. And I would say that as the church goes, goes society. And what has happened is as the church has grown weaker, more apathetic, or even more liberal or untrusting of God, what has happened to our culture and society? The same thing, but multiplied because they don't know the Lord at all. It's gotten waxed worse and worse. The issue of his day and the issue of our day is that God's justice and law were being replaced by man's ideology, theology, and perverted systems. So what can the righteous do when these foundations crumble? This is the answer. Put your trust in the Lord. That's it. The verses 4 to 7 then give us the confidence of David here, and this is, this is what we'll end on. Verses 4 to 7 aren't necessarily repetitive, but they are saying the same thing. That God is God, and because God is God, I can trust God. That's it. You got that? God is God, and because God is God, I can trust God. All right? You're taking notes. <laughs> he says in verse number 4, The Lord is in his holy temple. There is no sin there. There is no defilement there. The idea of his holy temple is his dwelling place. We find this great truth over the next few verses that you could simplify it to the Lord God reigneth. The Lord reigns. The Lord is in control. That God is God. And because God is God, I can trust God. We find that he is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. And by the way, he's not off of it. He can't be kicked out of it. He can't be voted out of it. It's not the White House. This is the throne of the heavens. And the only one that can sit upon the throne of the heavens is the one who made the heavens and the earth. The one triune God. This is God alone. He, because He is the one that is in the holy temple of the universe, because He is the one who is on the throne in heaven, what we find is that He is the only one who has authority over all things. No one else does. No one else has rights over your kids, over your life. It is God alone. If you're alive, your life does not belong to you. It belongs to God. He has authority because he gave you life. If you don't like that, well, tough. (laughs) He gave you life, therefore it is his. It belongs to him. This world belongs to him. This universe belongs to him. And he rules and reigns as as he sees fit. And how he sees fit is as we're going to see righteously in all things, as we've seen throughout all the Psalms, as we see throughout all the Scripture. He is seated upon his heavenly throne here. One commentator writes, God is holy. And from his throne in heaven, he sees all humankind. The throne of God is a symbol of his royal rule and authority to judge. To judge both now and to one day judge later. And he will judge righteously from his holy throne. Because how could a holy throne or a holy temple or a throne in heaven do anything that is wicked or unholy or not right or not just? He then says his eyes... Behold, his eyelids try the children of men. He sees all. 
and rightly judges all things. For those of us who are alive today, we might look and say, how could God allow these things? And you and I who have lived in America long enough, and especially to generations ahead of me, would say, I never thought I'd see this day. Certainly. Never thought you'd see the way that America has gone or the way the world has gone for that matter. And I've even heard many say, how could God let it get this far? I think the better question is, how could we let it get this far? God still very much rules, and we've often forgotten that. Although God seems to be inactive from our human perspective, He is observing, testing, and preparing to render judgment on the wicked and the righteous. So just keep holding on. God's going to be God, and He'll always remain God, so just let God do what only God can do. Second, we find this, that both the righteous and the wicked will receive their due reward. Look at this next verse. The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked and him that loveth violence his soul hateth. We've already talked about the word hateth. It's the idea that he's, he's against them. Why? Because they're against him. They're, they're at enmity, is what the Scripture tells us. They're, they're enemies of one another, enemies of the cross. They're enemies of his throne. Because you can go back to Psalm 2. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. They say, He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Why? Because He alone is God. See, it continues in verse 5, excuse me, verse 6. Upon the wicked He shall rain snares, fire and brimstone, and in horrible tempest. This shall be the portion of their cup. I heard it said recently that a preacher who preaches hellfire and brimstone isn't a hellfire brimstone preacher, they're a Bible preacher. By God's grace, that's what I'd like to be. Fire and brimstone is very much real. It's not made up. It's not just to scare little kids or to scare people into heaven, but rather it's the idea to show the very reality that God is the Lord who reigns and that all who are alive must answer to Him. Therefore, we must bow our knees now upon this side of the grave because there will be no second chance to try to get it right. There will be no do-overs. There will be no let me try it again or take another whack at it. And there will be no let me wait till my deathbed because there are plenty who never get to a deathbed. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the hour appointed. Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire and brimstone and horrible tempest. None of those things sound good. He says, this shall be the portion of their cup. And they must drink of that cup, and they have no choice of what goes in their cup. It's much like a little child who says, well, I don't want that. Mom or dad looks and says, well, that's what you're going to eat, or you're going to bed hungry sort of thing. Here, the option for the wicked is, you're going to drink this cup, and there is no other cup. You see, Jesus took and drank the cup of wrath reserved for you and I, but because we have been bought with a price, because we have trusted in His sacrifice and what He's done for us, we no longer have to drink from that cup. Instead, one day there's going to be a day where we get reunited with our Lord. We get to even drink from the cup of His righteousness, and we get to sit and sup with Him at the marriage supper. But to those who don't know Christ, they too will have a great supper. But in their cup will be the wrath of God of fire and brimstone. And they will never empty that cup no matter how much they drink or try to pour out that cup will remain full 
And verse 7 tells us this, though. For the righteous Lord loveth righteousness. His countenance doth behold the upright. See, the wicked will face their judgment in God's time and way. They will not escape or go unpunished for their rebellion. We talked about that last week in Psalm 10. David's hope is in that. His trust is in that. We also find the other side of that coin, and that is the righteous will experience God's grace, love, and see Him as their reward of faithfulness to Him. How do I know? It says, His countenance doth behold the upright. And I firmly believe, and there are others who debate, regardless of how, I do know this, that all those who are believers will one day see their Lord face to face. Whether it's just Christ and the flesh in glory, that, that may be so. I don't know, but I do know this. I'm going to see my God one day. I will behold him and he will behold me. What a sight. I can't imagine. I can't imagine what that will be like. And we see that the reward of heaven is not the streets of gold. It's not the gates of pearl or the beautiful walls. It's not even getting to see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and all the lineage of faithful men, women. It's not even about seeing grandma and grandpa. As great as those things will be on that reunion day, the reward of heaven isn't even the crowns that you will be given for your faithfulness. The reward of heaven is God Himself. That we can behold Him. The greatest prize of heaven is to see the one who outstretched his arms and bled and died for us. He is the goal. He is the great reward. He is the rewarder and the reward. As one commentator deals with this, he says, the foundations of righteousness are none other than his nature and will, what he is and what he loves. And if the first line of the psalm showed where the believer's safety lies, which would be in the Lord put I my trust, The last line shows where his heart should be. God as refuge may be sought from motives that are all too self-regarding. But to behold his face is a goal in which only love has any interest. The greatest thing about heaven and our goal is not selfish to go, I want to see how many crowns I get. It's I just want to see Jesus. There are those who might take it to an extreme and say, well, I'm fine with just having a place on the outskirts of heaven. Well, that's not what Jesus died for me to have a place on the outskirts of heaven. All right? he, he died so that I can behold him and see him. I can behold the one who has the scars to prove his love for me. And, and in perfect, pure love for the first time, when I walk through heaven's gates, I will be able to worship him and love him purely and perfectly. Until that day, I can't. The church today and how we act and behave and move and gather... It's to be a picture of that day, but we're imperfect, aren't we? If you find the perfect church, let the rest of us know. We'll go join it and mess it up. Because it wouldn't stay perfect for long, would it? But in heaven, it will certainly be perfect. Why? Because we'll be glorified. And Christ will be there. And nothing else will matter. For the Lord, the righteous Lord, loveth righteousness today in your life. And forever, it will be righteousness forever and forever and forever and forever and forever. And his countenance doth behold the upright. That's twofold. First of all, in this context, David says, I trust the Lord and I trust that God sees me. What David means when he says, I trust that God sees the upright, is he's not talking about the upright morally on the outside. 
but the upright of heart. What it means to have an upright heart or to be, as David was called, a man after God's own heart is to be someone who has faith in the Lord and in Him only do they trust. Secondly, it is this. that David knows that one day, because of the uprightness of his heart and the righteousness of God in him, is that he will see God in glory, that God will see him and will reward him for his faithfulness. Tonight, if you need encouragement, if you're going through a trial, or, or it, maybe you're not, maybe this is a mountaintop, then you can know that here in a short little while when you probably get thrown down in the valley that's not a comfortable landing, to know that it's short-lived. That God sees your heart. He knows your ways. He knows your thoughts. And the Bible even tells us that His thoughts are made towards us and that one day He will have His way. And until that day, all we can do, though our foundations be destroyed, though the enemy comes against us with a, uh, in deception with the bow, and though everything else seems to go wrong in our life, I can trust the Lord. And by simple faith, our faith will be made sight, and the God who beholds us now, the upright in heart, we will get to behold Him. Seeing our Lord at the finish line, not just of life, but throughout all of eternity, that's the goal. That's the glory of heaven. That's what this life is all about. Much like those in the Gospels who said, John 12, just, just kind of came here. Isn't neat? They say, sir, we would see Jesus. Tonight, may it be our hearts that say, I just want to see Jesus. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this night. Thank you for all that you've done for us. Thank you for your goodness throughout this day that we could gather and set aside time that you've not just called or commanded us to, but allowed us to gather, to worship together, and to fellowship with one another through your word. Lord, how sweet it is to see truths like this, to know that no matter what circumstance of life we're in, we can trust you. Lord, that though the foundations be destroyed in our nation, we see that we can still trust you, and you've called us to to get to, to hammering and to get to work, Lord, until you call us home. Lord, help us to be mindful and remember tonight that in all things that you, not just heaven, but you are our goal. That you are the glory of our life and the glory of all things. And Lord, that you've called us to a greater purpose. And it's not this temporary world, but it's to live for the eternal things. So God, help us tonight to have our strength and our, our faith strengthened and our, our minds and our hearts pointed to you. That we might see Jesus. We might behold him. And Lord, that we might keep in our hearts tonight knowing that you see us right where we are. May we be encouraged by it. May we be challenged by it. And we will be empowered to keep pressing forward and upward till we see your face. We love and we thank you for this time. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you guys for being here with us today. I enjoyed it thoroughly. But uh, pray the Lord bless you. Y'all have a good night. Be safe. And we'll see you Tuesday night.